Welcome to the 239th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I speak with historians Kyle Rees-Mendel and Mary Rizzo about the impact of COVID on cities and suburbs. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at its new time, starting today, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live, Twitch, and Periscope. And you can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, March 15th, 2021, there are 2,657,729 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the United States, the death toll from COVID-19 has risen to 535,472. In the city of Baltimore, 909 people have died from COVID-19. Please join me tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time for the one-year anniversary episode of COVID Calls. It's not an anniversary that anyone would choose, but since I've been doing these calls for a year now, it seems right to mark the day. I'll review some of the crucial issues that have been raised by the brilliant guests that I've talked to over this last year. We'll have a bit of a timeline of some of the main themes that we've covered, some of which you may have forgotten about in the crazy COVID time that we've been living through. And I'll have some special guests to join me as well. So please join me tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. for the one-year COVID calls anniversary episode. The way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Michael Sorkin, who championed social justice through architecture, dies at 71 from coronavirus. This was written by Harrison Smith and appeared March 31st, 2020 in the Washington Post. Michael Sorkin, a fiery champion of social justice and sustainability in architecture and urban planning, who emerged as one of his profession's most incisive public intellectuals over a multifaceted career as a critic, author, teacher, and designer, died March 26 at a hospital in Manhattan. He was 71. The cause was complications from the coronavirus disease, COVID-19, said his wife, film theorist, Joan Kupchak. Mr. Sorkin was an architectural gadfly known for biting attacks on structures that he deemed pretentious or lacking in social purpose. He called the flourishing postmodernist style of the 1980s, quote, an orgy of solipsism, narcissist architecture absorbed with self-reference and facade, unquote, and approached buildings from the perspective of a person on the street, asking how a new office tower or apartment block would contribute to a more just and equitable city. Quoting Sorkin here, for the woman staring at the CRT screen in the windowless back office, whether the doodads on the roof or Tuscan or Decon will be of no great import, he wrote in his 1991 book, Exquisite Corpse, writing on buildings. It mattered far more, he believed, for architects and critics 
to consider questions of how a person should live and work and to examine the political forces that caused luxury towers to rise and playgrounds to fall. Mr. Sorkin, who wrote or edited 20 books, variously served as the architecture critic for the Village Voice and the Nation, led the Urban Design Forum in New York, and directed the graduate program in urban design at the City College of New York's Spitzer School of Architecture. He also presided over his own firm, Michael Sorkin Studio, and an urban research institute called Terraform. His designs were whimsical, ambitious, and often unabashedly idealistic. He developed an alternative master plan for New York and dreamed up a post-industrial, post-automotive city known as Weed, Arizona. He created a house as garden proposal that reimagined a narrow Harlem lot as a terraced, light-filled, affordable housing development. And he brought an emphasis on sustainability to numerous projects in China, including a jellyfish-shaped hotel in Tianjin and a master plan for Zhongan, a new city south of Beijing. Relatively few of his proposals came to fruition, but they served as a platform for Mr. Sorkin to advance his ideas, including his belief in the importance of public spaces, the primacy of pedestrians over cars, and the, quote, cheek by jowlness, unquote, that makes cities so vibrant. He was probably our most impassioned advocate of architecture as a means towards social justice, said architecture critic Paul Goldberger, who sparred with Mr. Sorkin in the 1980s before reconciling in recent years. He believed passionately in public space and the city. He believed in equality. He believed, I think it's fair to say, that architecture was inherently political and reflected social power, and he relentlessly pushed architecture to do better and to stand for more than it did. Mr. Sorkin was primarily known for his criticism, which he described as architecture by other means. A polymath who studied Persian literature in college and received a master's in English at Columbia University, he studied architecture at MIT in the 1970s and turned to criticism after deciding that it was almost impossible to work as a designer, at least in the way he wanted. Mr. Sorkin could be unusually forthright in his views. He once interrupted a public meeting on the post 9-11 fate of Ground Zero, the World Trade Center site, by shouting an expletive at the moderators. Mr. Sorkin, who lamented that luxury developments were turning Manhattan into the world's largest gated community, had called for the site to serve as a public space that encouraged peaceable assembly. Passing the site several times a week, I'm increasingly struck by its power and coherence as a space, he wrote in a 2003 essay. No building will ever achieve the eloquence of this void in speaking of the event. We do not hallow this ground simply by filling it with buildings. Michael David Sorkin was born in Washington on August 2nd, 1948. His mother was a social worker and his father was an engineer and metallurgist who rose to direct an office of the Naval Sea Systems Command, assembling a collection of model boats that served as playthings for his only child. The family settled in Fairfax County, Virginia, where Mr. Sorkin became fascinated by architecture while exploring the mid-century modern buildings around his neighborhood of Holland Hills. One of his neighbors had worked for the Olmsted brothers, the esteemed landscape architects, and became a surrogate grandfather, Mr. Sorkin told Architect Magazine. Actual grandparents lived in New York, which Mr. Sorkin visited on holidays, increasingly intoxicated by its skyline in the image of a bar graph, he said. On road trips, Mr. Sorkin liked to say he passed the time by editing the landscape in his mind. Sorkin graduated from the University of Chicago in 1969 and three decades later was commissioned by the school to design an alternative to its architectural master plan. 
He received a master's degree from Columbia in 1971 and began his architectural studies at MIT, only to leave school in 1973 and complete a master of architecture in 1984. He taught at schools, including the Academy of Fine Arts, Vienna, before joining City College in 2000. In 1982, he married Kupchak, his sole immediate survivor. Mr. Sorkin's books include All Over the Map, which appeared in 2011, a collection of articles he wrote for Architectural Record, and 20 Minutes in Manhattan in 2009, a con conversational account of his daily walk from Greenwich Village, where he and his wife lived in a rent-controlled apartment, to his studio in Tribeca, sprinkled with digressions on stoops, stairs, and the links between politics and architecture. It was a theme that Mr. Sorkin continued to explore in recent years, notably in an Architectural Record essay published two months before the 2016 election of Donald Trump as president. Civilizations are marked by their priorities, he wrote, and ours are too given over to prisons, malls, big mansions, and too little to good housing for all complete and sustainable communities, green energy, rational mobility, structures of succor. Politics programs are architecture, he wrote. The emblem of Trump's agenda is a piece of architecture that absurd pharaonic wall he bruits for the Mexican border. His whole project trumpets control, and his mantra is shared by many an architect. Just leave it to me. Okay, I'm happy to bring my guests on. Let me introduce them for this conversation today. Kyle Reismendel is a senior university lecturer and the interim director of the Law, Technology, and Culture Program in the Federated Department of History at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, Rutgers, Newark. He is a cultural historian of cities, suburbs, and media, and technology in recent American history. In addition to teaching courses in those areas, he's the author of Neighborhood of Fear, The Suburban Crisis in American Culture from 1975 to 2001, a Smithsonian scholar's favorite book, of 2020 and definitely a book you should pick up and you should also pick up the recent book by my second guest Mary Rizzo. Mary is assistant professor of history at Rutgers University Newark. She's the author of Come and Be Shocked, Baltimore Beyond John Waters and The Wire, which appeared in Johns Hopkins Press in 2020. And she's the author of Class Acts, Young Men and the Rise of Lifestyle, which appeared with University of Nevada Press. She's also the founder of the Chicory Revitalization Project, which uses the black community poetry magazine Chicory to spur dialogue on place and identity. Kyle and Mary, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'd like to start the way that I usually do just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there today. Mary, can I start with you on that, please? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm calling in from uh, Newark, New Jersey, um, which is the largest city in New Jersey uh, for folks that don't know. And we are, according to The New York Times, still at very high risk uh, where uh, where I am in Newark. Um, and particularly, I live in an immigrant neighborhood called the Ironbound, um, which has been a really the hot spot of the city of Newark for COVID, I think because so many essential workers um, and restaurant workers live here, too. So um, it's been a pretty, uh, pretty scary uh, time overall. Um, and right now, I'm not sure when I'll be able to get vaccinated, but, um, you know, hopefully in the next couple of months. I know Newark a little bit because I, I adjuncted at NJIT huh. at one point long while back and got to go into the Ironbound and that walk around the train station and, and to the campus, which is a wonderful um, walk. But I wonder how about 
how the campus has done during the pandemic it is truly an, an urban campus in every sense of the word. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we're mostly a commuter campus, so that's actually been a, a benefit at this moment. There aren't a lot of students who live on campus, so we didn't have the same problems that a lot of residential colleges had. Um, so we're not, we're virtual. Um, so there are uh, no students really taking classes. And um, the rates of COVID for the small number of students who are on campus um, have been very low. So it's been, it's been uh, I think the university has done really well with this a terrible situation. What about the protests in the spring and summer of 2020 uh, after the murder of George Floyd? Did that, was that happening right there in, in, in Newark in that part of downtown? Absolutely. Yeah, there were a lot of protests, really large protests that were happening in downtown Newark um, that, you know, had thousands of people in the streets. Um, you know, Newark is a majority African-American city, has a really and a growing um, Latino population. Um, so there was a huge outpouring of support ab about about the George Floyd uh, move, uh, murder and Black Lives Matter. So, yeah, there was there was a lot that was going on at the time. Kyle, let me bring you in. Same question. Where are you calling from and, and what's it looking like there today? perhaps dramatizing the subjects of our book. Um, I'm about eight miles away in Montclair, New Jersey, in the suburbs of Newark. Uh, there you go. It has been, you know, so we're both in Essex County, which Mary rightly points out has been the hotspot um, of New Jersey, but because it's a county that is spread out um, enough that the sort of West Essex suburbs and where, where I live um, have not been hit as nearly as hard as Newark uh, for, for a variety of reasons you can imagine. Um, there has been more unrest here about schools and about um, businesses being closed than there has been about um, Black Lives Matter or George Floyd. Although I think, to be fair to Montclair, I think it fancies itself a progressive suburb. Uh, its motto is where the suburb meets the city. And there is definitely um, a progressive streak to its politics, but there is also the localness of its politics is, is tends to be more reactionary and more sort of conservative. Kyle, let me let me stay with you. You have this this great new book, uh, The Suburban Crisis in American Sorry, A Neighborhood of Fear: The Suburban Crisis in American Culture, 1975 to 2001. I wonder if if you wouldn't maybe give us some of the headlines from the book, some of the findings. I know that's an almost impossible task, but but particularly in light of the pandemic and how you see that work now through that that prism of this this past year of the of the pandemic. Yeah. So there's the key concept of the book is productive victimization, which is the idea that suburbanites over this period that I cover at the end of the 20th century react to a number of real material threats that emerge as visible and um, sort of pervasive. Uh, so kidnapping and uh, environmental dangers such as toxic waste, um, the satanic panic and the fears around morality and the family. And that in response, they are able to do a whole bunch of things, right? They don't just act defensively, but expand their power culturally and over space. So things like um, Neighborhood Watch that eventually evolves into Stand Your Ground, NIMBYism, which is a reaction to the local environmental threats. And so the connection I see to today is that victimization has been woven into the fabric of power, that much many of the claims that are made, at least in mainstream politics, and I think even with regard to masking and vaccines, are made around that idea many people, it seems, at least for a lot of the time, felt as though they were being victimized by government to wear masks, not victimized by a disease that was clearly killing, you know, thousands of people. Um, and in some sense, I think it was a continuation of the kind of privilege I talk about in the book. So the suburban crisis is really about expectations, about privilege, about wanting and hoping to find this thing that you were sold. 
you know, in the media posts where era, the kind of leave it to beaver suburb that becomes love canal um, or the place where Adam Walsh is kidnapped and murdered from a mall in the middle of the day. And so that culture, I think, has, you know, shaped mainstream politics in the right return. And I think is now embedded with people's idea of how to get stuff done, that if they can rightfully claim victimization, they're allowed to do stuff. Uh, and I think the reaction to vaccines and masks is definitely part of that. Yeah, that's it's, of course, been a stream of, of writing about cities as long as people have been writing about cities that um, the city becomes the most dangerous place uh, for disease and disease outbreak and, and pandemic. And so there's the retreat to the to the countryside before there's even suburbs and then there's the retreat to the mm-hmm. suburbs. Have you seen that that rhetoric throughout this last year as well? Yeah, I think, again, the sort of expectation that things will not touch you here, right? That that is not part of the discourse, that we are somehow different and differentiated, which is true, right? That it, it is a real material thing, both the distance and the class differences, um, which often map pretty neatly onto race, as you'll see, if we talk sort of the difference between Newark and Montclair um, or, or any number of cities in their suburbs. So <laughs> there is definitely that expectation that is sort of pervasive, that we, that white people in the suburbs, largely speaking, can evade or move away from these threats, right? That they're not part of their daily lives. And that's in fact, part of the reason you live here. You know, you're right to point out that the origins of the suburbs in the 19th century in the US are all about escaping cities, right? That like, they're dirty, they're dangerous, they're full of immigrants and people of color. So where do we go in the summer? Where do we go to to breathe clean air, et cetera? You know, as you pointed out with the Michael Sorkin, um, I I hadn't realized he had passed actually, or, or I'd forgotten because it's been such a year. Um, but that idea of the Olmstead and um, urban planning and suburban planning ultimately is one of creating harmony with nature, right? Taming nature and making it part of your daily life in this way that is manufactured, but is also supposed to be quote unquote healthy. So I think that legacy is very much alive and well. Mm. And, and as I, I think about that, you know, I haven't looked at the statistics. I don't know if, if you have, I mean, it, it's certainly true that, you know, early in the pandemic, if you look at the case of New York city, yeah, I mean, the, there are more people dying in New York City than they're dying in the outlying suburbs, probably for the month of, of April. But I don't know how long those statistics bear out. I mean, this idea that you retreat to the suburbs as a place of safety with COVID, um, I think that's going to take some examination. Yeah, I, I don't know how true it is, but it I think it's culturally true, right? I think people believe right, that it's right. true and they practice it as if it's true. And I would argue, I think here that both in total number and in rate, Newark is far and away more dangerous um, for the reasons Mary enumerated, right? That not Mm -hmm. just density of population, but simply because of the class differences that those people move, they move about the city consistently. Whereas here it is remote work, right? That most of us are not going anywhere unless we really want to or have to. So it is just, it, I believe as of, I want to say Montclair has 60 people who've died in a year. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm guessing Newark has 600 or a thousand. You know, it's it's got to be a lot more. What a, a powerful and Mary. I want to bring you in here in just a second. I just want to underline something Kyle said there um, before it escapes, which is that there's something about a fact, something that might be true about cities or public health, and but the, there's cultural truth as well. And that I mean, I, what a, a beautiful and horrible summation of this past year of watching the United States try to deal with this balance between what scientists are saying is true and what cultural figures like, for example, the president of the United States 
um, says is true and the play between those. And people have chosen culture over science um, in many, many cases, if not the majority of cases in the United States over the last year. Mary, let me bring you in. Same question um, about your your book. And again, just to let people know, you're the author of Come and Be Shocked, Baltimore Beyond John Waters and the Wire. And so maybe as Kyle did, hit some of the high points of it for us, but also how you see that work now. Sure. Yeah. Um, so and there's a there's a, a lot of interesting overlap between Kyle's work and, and my work. And certainly that idea of cultural truth, I think, is really uh, relevant to uh, to the book that I wrote as well. So what I look at in, in Come and Be Shocked is um, how the city of Baltimore became um, a, a sort of a representation or a metonym for cities everywhere um, through the way it was represented in culture. Right. So um, for a city of its size, and obviously Baltimore is not a large city, um, it's been the subject of a large number of cultural representations over the um, last half of the 20th century and into the 21st. And some of these are incredibly powerful representations. So um, I'm not sure if your your listeners have any like ideas in their head that immediately sprang to mind when I said cultural representations of Baltimore, but I'm going to guess if they do, it's The Wire, right? The David Simon HBO uh, show about um, cops and drug dealers in Baltimore. But there's a whole history before The Wire that um, the wire, I think, is sort of the, the end point of. And, and what I look at is how that came to be, right? How did Baltimore come to be this uh, sense, uh, central sort of point of representation for cities? Because what I would argue is that um, through shows like The Wire, Baltimore became a way to talk about what was happening with cities everywhere, well beyond mm. the city of Baltimore itself. So I look at how um, the city uh, municipal government tried to control the image that was presented through culture starting in the 1970s. So there was a, a real effort to make sure that the image that uh, of Baltimore that went around the world was an image that Baltimore uh, city officials wanted, which is very different than that which the people of Baltimore might have wanted or artists might have wanted. Um, and that uh, a, a key part of that is the rise of tourism as a major industry in Baltimore and in Maryland um, overall, which is something that I think, you know, we can definitely come back to in terms of uh, the effect of COVID. Um, and then the second piece of the book, the second sort of main argument has to uh, do with race and thinking about how those structures are affected um, through, if we look at them through the prism of race. And so I argue that there are actually two Baltimores that have been created through culture. One we can call Charm City, which is the sort of white eccentric Baltimore. You might want to think of like the movie Hairspray, right? Um, and that's the Baltimore that you might want to go visit as a tourist, right? It's fun. It's safe. It's quirky. You know, that sounds like a, a nice place to go for a weekend. Um, the other image of Baltimore, though, is, is what I, I refer to as Bodymore, um, which was a popular sort of graffiti tag in the city of Baltimore to reference the high murder rate. Um, and Bodymore is then associated more with African-American neighborhoods in Baltimore, and it's defined as a place of danger and death. Um, and of course, it's interesting thinking about that in terms of public health now. Um, but primarily, that's been thought of in terms of like gun violence um, and crime and drugs um, up until this point. And the um, uh, reality is that the fact that those two images exist simultaneously in the city um, has material consequences so that the places that are deemed Charm City, belonging to Charm City, get more resources from the city government because they can fit into the larger tourism narrative that the city is trying to promote. Um, the places that are body more 
don't get those resources in the same way and so continue to um, deteriorate. Uh, so um, so that's the sort of a basic overall structure of the book. And I think, you know, thinking about that through the lens of, of pandemic, I mean, it actually makes me think about, about this through the lens of the two plagues that we've been dealing with this year, which is, of course, pandemic and the plague of COVID and the plague of racism. Um, and so um, before George Floyd's murder, Baltimore was the site um, of the murder of Freddie Gray, a young black man by Baltimore police, which um, spurred an uprising in reaction to that in 2015. Um, and that really raised a lot of issues for Baltimore about the two Baltimores, which, you know, that was a subject of a lot of um, media coverage at the time. And it still uh, maintains today, right? So that the two Baltimores are the two Baltimores that are defined by racial inequity and the two Baltimores that are also defined by um, public health inequity, uh, which is uh, obviously a, a key piece of thinking who gets affected most by mm -hmm. this pandemic. Wow. Um, thank you for, for that. And there's so many points there. As a person who lived in, in Baltimore for a few years when I was in graduate school, um, it, first of all, there was a, a sort of a running game to see who could spot John Waters, and that, I think that's a sort of normal Baltimore thing to do. Um, but also, you know, engaging with those works because I lived there before the um, before the wire. So, but I read the corner, and and you know, there's two Baltimores. A lot of people have my experience. They're outsiders to Baltimore. They move in. They take advantage of the educational opportunities there. Johns Hopkins is the largest employer, I believe they were then in Baltimore County. Um, and then you go, you go away, but you always sort of keep in mind that exactly the way you defined it, that sort of charm city, or, or for us, it was the, the, um, the bus, um, um, benches that said, you know, the city that reads and ha most of them were not functional. So there's that. And then there's, you know, the corner of West Fayette and Mount street, um, which is the centerpiece of, of the corner. And, and I have to say, I mean, the cultural power. And back to you know Kyle's observation a minute ago, the cultural power of those creations is such that I have found myself this last year wondering what the characters for The Wire would be doing in the midst of the pandemic. I wonder if you've had a similar kind of, you probably have approached it analytically, but thinking about that, that power of that interpretation through culture as a way to make sense of really scary or un, unsettled things. Mary, what, how have you thought about those characters or that cultural production more specifically well, in light of COVID? Yeah, well, it's actually funny. One of the things that that uh, I was thinking about in preparation, actually, for our conversation today, was like, what would it look like if John Waters was a young man making movies right now as a twenty-year-old in Baltimore, right? Because you know his early movies were all about shock, right, mm -hmm. shock value, um, and about uh, sort of overturning bourgeois morality. And I think you know what? He'd be making a movie where people are sucking on each other's masks, right? Or they'd be breathing in each other's faces, right? Because yeah, that totally. that would be clearly the most shocking thing you could possibly imagine someone doing right now. Um, you know, and I think it's interesting that you mention um, The Wire uh, uh, and the what people are, you know, what the characters might be doing today, because um, as you may be aware, there's uh, been a long uh, standing um controversy in Baltimore around the Baltimore police um, and this elite unit called the Gun Trace Task Force, which was found to have been uh, corrupt and planting evidence and, you know, stealing from um, uh, drug dealers and, uh, and other folks. So some of those folks that we actually know, you know, exactly what they're doing, they're on trial, they're going to jail, they're, you know, doing all, all of that kind of stuff, uh, which I think is interesting to think about, you know, the not the um, not just the 
uh, drug dealing characters in The Wire or the characters that live in the projects, but what are the cops doing in Baltimore mm -hmm. right now? And how did those representations uh, by David Simon of police as, you know, lone kind of heroes, right, that they're working outside of the system, how that's part of what you know people now call copaganda that allows, um, you know, mm. this sort of pervasive um, racist policing to happen? Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today about cities and, and suburbs and politics and culture with Kyle Reese-Mendel and Mary Rizzo. Um, Kyle, let me bring you in. I, I have a kind of a broad question, which we've already touched a few points on, but there has been an outpouring uh, of sort of analysis of what the pandemic has meant to cities. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about the disparity of, you know, um, dense urban places and the sort of first wave of the pandemic. So they become they're framed as in intensely dangerous places. But then there's been a sort of um, um, a literature, a kind of counter literature that I've seen that said, no, this is going to be another renaissance moment for cities because people have rediscovered the importance once they could get out of their houses, the importance of public parks and the importance of nature in the city and connectedness and mutual aid. It's probably not all that um, binary, but I'm curious your sort of thoughts about both the, the questions on the surface, but also the discourse itself, which I sometimes find urbanist discourse to be a little bit, again, sort of dualistic about what cities are. But what, what have you been thinking about sort of lessons for city planning and city policy at this time, Kyle? So I, I do want to just go back slightly to your Baltimore conversation because one, no, you, said, you said my favorite thing about Baltimore, which is the city that reads as someone I used to live in Baltimore as well. Oh, okay. And that tagline, it just always struck me as, it, I mean, as sadly as terribly ironic, I think in a way, um, although it has a great public library system, but it also just felt so absurdly aspirational that they gave up on it so quickly <laughs> um, to, in, in favor of this, you know, frankly, Michael Sorkin-esque theme park idea of Baltimore, right? That Mary's going to be talking about. When is your talk, Mary, coming up about urban renaissance? <laughs> I, I actually am doing a talk on uh, Friday for the Baltimore Architecture Forum. So oh, thank great. you, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, well, because, well, and it's, but it's exactly what you're talking about, right? It's about this urban renaissance of the 1970s that turns downtown cities into theme parks, right? It is supposed to be, a suburban version of the city for tourists to spend money, right? And this is the revitalization of the Inner Harbor in Baltimore, right? This is where eventually Camden Yards goes and the ESPN zone. And, you know, like it, it is just hilariously consumeristic. And of course, it is now sort of fallow, right? It is a place that is kind of emptied out because of both the housing crisis and COVID. Uh, but to your larger point, I think we see the same divides, but they're just more stark, meaning we know that red line neighborhoods have done worse in COVID. Um, historically, red line neighborhoods have worse health outcomes. They have lower wealth. Um, and that the things that you're talking about, right, the back to the park or revisiting cities as this kind of civic or public space will continue to function that way as they did for exactly the kind of people we were talking about in Baltimore, probably that you and I were, um, who freely walk about, right, you know, so even, even maybe classically the flaneur, right, that the watcher who's not watched, right? Um, 
And it will function the same for people of color who are addressed fundamentally differently in those spaces, right? The bird watching incident of a year ago um, yeah. is a perfect example, right? That this kind of profiling and thinking about who who's appropriate to public space, who belongs and what is public space for. Um, and, and in part, again, it is, you know, I, I hate now that I'm thinking about Michael Sorkin so much, but it is so clearly about consumerism, right? That like public spaces cease to exist at some fundamental level, even in cities, right? That parts of Central Park are now taken over or in some way populated by booze or sales or you know the highline park is a perfect example of this as well in new york city so so i suspect that we will not learn any lessons from the the stark in, inequities that were made even more clear during covid and we will try to go back to quote unquote normal um, but i will say and, and I, I try to say this to my students often in teaching urban history is these are not simply stories of domination though they appear to be right that there is massive resistance in the system both at the individual and structural level that I, I do think reform-minded mayors and um, uh, attorneys have tried to reform the systems of policing to some degree. Civilian oversight, uh, Mary, Mary and her partner have worked very hard at that in Newark. And that there are citizens who are really trying to take back public space for the public who see it as fundamentally unfair and, un, you know, Black Lives Matter is not, is not simply a slogan, right? It's a description. It is saying, this is what we are for. And it's a fundamental concept. And the retaking of public space, I think, is about that. Mary, your your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I I think that um, uh, what Kyle's saying is exactly right, and and you know I, I think that you know we all, of course we're both historians, so we have to think about this historically, and you know the um, uh, uh, wave of urban renewal that happened in the middle of the 20th century in cities like Baltimore and Newark, and and you know many many cities around the country were about the fundamental uh, restructuring of public space, and you know theoretically it was uh, intended to modernize the city to uh, uh, and also improve uh, the terrible housing that many poor people who are people of color uh, lived in. And of course, the reality is that that didn't happen, right? And in the end, it was merely a way for downtowns to be remade, to be more amenable to uh, corporations and businesses, um, and the people who work in those places or like downtown shoppers, right? So um, in Baltimore, you know, uh, Charles Center was the first urban renewal uh, project that was finished. But of course, you know, we have to think about, as Kyle mentioned, Inner Harbor as the uh, uh, epitome of the Baltimore Renaissance, right? And after the Inner Harbor opens in 1980, New York, the New York Times says the 1980 is the year of Baltimore, as if you know that the creation of that space, right, with a mall as part of it, is the thing that is going to you know quote unquote save the city. And what's fascinating to me and frustrating is. Um, that we never seem cities never seem to learn their lesson um, that mall a mall isn't going to save you. So in New Jersey, for example, and this is not in a city, but in uh, the Meadowlands, right um, in northern New Jersey, they uh, finished a mall called Xanadu. I mean, you couldn't make this up if you tried. Um, that cost, I think, five billion dollars in the end to build over the course of many, many, many years, and it opened right before the pandemic. Uh, it's this huge mall with like a ski slope inside. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. And then of course, um, the pandemic is that just hits a nostalgia trip for millennials, like, or, or not millennials, for Gen Xers like me? What I don't even understand I the actually concept. think... Yeah, well, no, it's a great question, but I, I actually think, and Kyle, jump in if you if you know for sure, but I, I think, you know, they were, because um, it was really high-end, uh, high-end mall, basically, kind of like the one that they opened in Manhattan um, last year as well. And so I think they were actually working for the international tourist market. Um, so you come to New Jersey, you can buy things low, uh, low uh, sales tax, and then, um, you know, fly back home. So, but also a theme park as well, like quite literally a theme park inside it as well. So, you know, it's like we see what's happened 
with cities. We see that this has not um, saved any of the cities that have tried this. And yet it's like we can't I don't know. It's like Groundhog Day. We're like just keep doing the same thing Mm -hmm. over and over again, trying to um, uh, create something different. um, And it's just not working. I think about the Kyle, go ahead and and come in on that. I, I sorry, I was gonna I was gonna speak to Xanadu now called the American Dream. Oh um, right. Which is right. also an and, and empty mall, which is also an empty theme park. Called the American Dream. Jersey. Yeah. It's and like there, an American studies uh, like well, you really can't make this stuff up. And nope. it, I and the, I remember reading this kind of stuff in the ninety again, coming back to Sorkin. I mean, it's sort of mm-hmm. hanging over this conversation. Like and he's pointing yeah. out those things. I was like, Yeah, what who are we? And right. then we think we've moved past it, and of course. We haven't, but the pandemic shows us these empty spaces, like they empty immediately and they stay empty for a, a while. Um, Kyle, you were going to come in on that point. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I So, yes, I it, it, there's another, another example from, I believe it's the late 80s or early 90s in Silver Spring, Maryland, where they attempt a kind of mini version of the Baltimore Inner Harbor in downtown to try to make it more urban, but it's still a suburb of Washington, D.C., right? So it's literally right outside of Washington, D.C., but the kind of northern tip of D.C., which is itself kind of suburban. And they they attempt to build a mall called the American Dream. Um, <laughs> and they're unable to fin- like they're unable to get it finished. Right. Um, because nobody wants to invest in it and no one wants to put anything there because this is in the this was in the era of crack. And it was seen as a place that would be urban, quote unquote. Right. Of course, read black um, and attract crime and all the things they didn't want in Silver Spring. Right. It wasn't an, they didn't want the mall enough to be able to give up that space that might possibly have these people there, right? This is actually the era which uh, Dave Chappelle grows up there. You know, he's slightly older, but, you know, it, he, so he talks a lot about that era, right, of Washington, D.C. and also Maryland. Um, you asked me a question before that, and I don't remember what it was. <laughs> well, I was just going to loop back to your image, and both of you were talking about, um, if people are not familiar with Baltimore, there's this sort of inner harbor area, mm-hmm. which was one of the, um, well, it was a center of population of the city because it was the working port of Baltimore and it for a long time, and it was a a center of warehouses and businesses of all types and all sizes and a lot of um, small family businesses that served uh, manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And I think about the really great classic David Harvey essay of you from Federal Hill in which he uh, sort of tells the story of the so-called revitalization of that area. Um, And as you pointed out, Mary, it was an experiment station for that kind of um, revitalization of formerly um, uh, 19th century industrial or commercial areas. And, and I come back to that because one of the most interesting things about that piece to me was the work he did in actually showing the disappearing small and medium-sized businesses mm-hmm. th- that held Baltimore together. Um, and so that if you are looking, and this is back to what you were saying, Kyle, if, if what you're looking at and seeing is a, a city that's on the ropes and there's a lot of sort of urban decay porn out there, uh, you know, showing an empty steel mill or showing, a, a, you know, some trash on the street. And if that's your only picture of what Baltimore is, right. you may not ask for additional information that would tell you, well, when was that picture taken? Is that actually what reflective of um, what's holding the city, what's really holding the city together, which is usually smaller and medium-sized businesses, family-owned businesses. Um, and that's what's holding, and city, you know, city like Baltimore, which is complicated array of neighborhoods, um, was doing both better and worse than a lot of planners and investors thought it was in the 1960s. And Harvey shows how that really gets decimated. And I bring that up to the present because I worry about that now too, that if the reaction of cities is to prop up the bigger ticket 
tourist-friendly kinds of urban spaces to the detriment of small business in cities like Baltimore or Philadelphia or New York or Los Angeles or anywhere. Um, I really worry about that as an after effect of the pandemic because it's those small businesses don't come back with big tax breaks from um, city leaders. So, so I don't know, again, sort of re-engaging this problem of the, the sense of what the problem is and the sense of what the fix is in the midst of the pandemic is to me a little vexing. Kyle, what do you think about that? I, I tend to agree. And I think so the focus on market reform or sort of the, uh, of kind of neoliberal economics at this point, right, I guess is what we're calling it, um, sustains itself on what you just said, right? That there has to be redevelopment consistently and constantly and redevelopment really is only possible by destroying things right like that you know fundamentally you have to as we did with urban renewal you have to destroy these spaces that are seen as non-consumptive or non-productive to create productive space and cities don't care ultimately i don't think in their at least in their policies about small businesses or or about non-chain or non-sort of corporate businesses right so they are fine with empty storefronts because they believe and maybe they're wrong but they believe they can replace them with something else right they believe that that could be redeveloped that that one space can become a seven-story building or could be part of this neighborhood in a way to sort of anchor this neighborhood on the corner with instead of having you know the old italian restaurant now they have spaghetti factory right and does anybody really care you know like that they'll have that kind of ethic about it um which will then you know price people out of the neighborhood and do all the things that kind of undermine what I think otherwise people in that neighborhood for a long time, the people who make gentrification possible by maintaining the character of the neighborhood, sustaining those businesses, et cetera, um, who move away or, or displaced in some way. Like we see exactly that happening in Jersey city in, in Jersey. Right. So, I mean, it was pronounced dead, you know, in the 1990s and early two thousands, like truly just no one thought it would ever come back and it has, but it has around this exact thing. The Jersey City make it yours idea, which is their slogan, is very offensive to people who've been in Jersey City for 40 years and have kept Jersey City going, right? Particularly the, the Latinx population. So I, I think that dynamic of just the, the fundamentals of capitalism and urban capitalism, I don't think are going away. Can I can I jump in on that point too? Um, so one of the um, uh, nuggets that I found while doing my research on Baltimore that I, I just absolutely was blown away by uh, and loved was um, in the 1970s as William Donald Schaefer is mayor of Baltimore and he is really who I point to as the kind of turning point in the city as it's moving from a uh, uh, in a post-industrial or deindustrializing city into a sort of arts and culture and tourism uh, a based economy. Right? Um, he I found a newspaper article that talked about how um, there was a chemical plant that employed like 50 or 60 people um, and that the city displaced it because they wanted to expand uh, one of the theaters. I think it was the Lyric Theater, right? And to my mind, I was just, I was like blown away by this. Like, think about that. You're losing, right, good working class jobs in order to expand a, a, a space of, of arts and culture consumption. Um, and it really does put the lie to the um, uh, constant rhetoric about how right cities are trying to support these small businesses. But I think, as you mentioned, what Dav David Harvey and Sharon Zukin show is that cities are in the business of pushing out the kinds of businesses that they deem as not um, appropriate for the image of the city, right? So with New York, of course, as we move to, you know, the becoming this financial capital, we don't want small manufacturers any there anymore. And so I just think that, you know, it's just good to be reminded historically of, of that reality, because I think the rhetoric is quite different. What we hear from cities is that they are supportive of small businesses. And of course, you know, the eventual, um, 
uh, end point of this. And what we've seen happen in Baltimore is the replacement of, you know, those good manufacturing jobs with service industry jobs, right? So tourist sector jobs do employ a lot of people in Baltimore, right? I think 86,000. Um, but they are low paying, you know, no health insurance, uh, insecure jobs, particularly now that the pandemic has decimated the tourism industry. So, you know, what what have we chosen, right? And could there was there another path that was available to us if we had not doubled down on a kind of neoliberal view of what city governments can be? Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking today to Kyle Reese Mendel and Mary Rizzo. And you can get questions in if you want to put them up in the YouTube live chat, or you can put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag at US of Disaster. I'm, you're both expert in interpreting culture and sort of cultural signs as markers of sort of deeper structural issues that are going on um, in the city-suburb relationship. So I wanted to brainstorm with you a little bit. I've been trying to think about this a little bit myself. The kinds of imagery and signs that traffic in this danger and safety discourse when it comes to COVID. And um, I don't really even have a question so much as just to get your thoughts on this and, and a couple of data points. One is that early on um, in, in New York, but not only New York, this was a phenomenon in cities around the world, that there was this sort of um, kind of confusing, but I thought really fascinating um, dance going on where obviously these were centers of death in March and April, New York City. But then there was also the banging of the pots and pans every day at a certain hour for the essential workers, for the for the health workers. And so cities were being presented simultaneously as these places of immense danger. And so a lot of Americans are sitting at home and watching, you know, evening news program, and they're seeing these numbers. And if they're suburban or rural, they're saying, well, that's New York for you, a dangerous place. But then the news, the next cut is a journalist saying, and now here's everybody rallying for the health workers and, and with this great act of solidarity. Um, I found that um, usefully confusing because it's, it's not a clear sort of answer what we're supposed to take away from that. But the repetition of sirens and various kind of, of signage and various things that are usually presented as urban um, maybe continues to add to this kind of discussion we were having before about how we just signs that sort of signal to us whether a place is dangerous or whether or not it's safe. Kyle, let me bring you in on, on that first. I, I know you're, you have a keen eye for this kind of thing. What have you been watching in that regard? And I just want to make a note here in your book. I mean, you really do a great job in talking about everything from like board games and um, all kinds of, you know, uh, public information signage and that goes on around the ideas of safety and, and, and danger in suburban spaces, which it becomes a, a sort of uh, a terrible, you know, horrible concern and then drives public policy. So that's why I'm asking you both to sort of think about this with me a little bit. Yeah, I mean... It is like the Victorians and sex, right? If they're whenever they're trying to keep you from having sex or thinking about sex, they're talking about sex, right? So safety and danger are always linked, right? If you're talking about safety, you're talking about danger. And so I, I'm and, and the other sort of parallel or the thing that struck me in you talking about Scott was the numbers, right? That we are in this moment of measurement of quantifiable things, right? That 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 is a way in which things are meaningful at some level. 
Um, but it's also the way in which they can be not processed, right? That, you know, you, you read off those numbers at the beginning and you say how many days it's been and it becomes numbing, right? We, we, we fail to, I think, and I think this is why you do the story of someone, right? Is to say there are real people here, um, you know, like the front page of the New York Times or somewhere else where they list the names. It's, it's trying to remind you of that. And it reminds me of Vietnam, right? That the banning of imagery of caskets and of bodies, right? But the announcing of the numbers on the nightly news sort of did exactly what you're talking about. It both reminded people of death and all of these things, and it helped turn the tide against the war, but it took away the actual humanity of the thing that people couldn't relate to, right? That ultimately, in, in you know, the, the cultural narratives are sort of mixed, but it became, it took a long time to relate to the Vietnam generation or the people who went to Vietnam and came back, right? Because of this, right? Because their, their service was sort of abstract in this way. And I think we have the same thing now, which is sirens and pans and there is no materiality to it and people can't relate or grasp onto it as real. And in fact, many people think it is not real, I think, because of that. And so I think we're going to continue with that kind of symbolic relationship, truly symbolic relationship to death. Um, in a culture that I think is obsessed with denying death, right? So, you know, the, the, this is not surprising, I guess. But that that's my take is that we're at that arm's length that if, if we were showing carnage in an – is there a non-exploitative way? No. But if we were at least trying to present it in some humanistic way, I think that would go much further in creating a culture that would reckon with a lot of the things we're talking about. Hmm. Mary, can I, can I bring you in on on this? Sure. I don't, I don't know that I have anything as profound to say as, as Kyle just did. But, you know, it, when you were talking, Scott, about this uh, sort of what are what are the sort of images or the symbols that we're going to um, be you know seeing and, and associating you know with COVID? I mean, one of the things that jumped to mind, I, I, and I do think it's really important when we talk about cities, is that, you know, a city is a complex organism, right? So that, um, you know, we may say New York City or Baltimore, but actually there are uh, lots right. of cities within that. Sure. So yeah. I think I, I think about those um pod the restaurant pod structures that pe that you know places that are nice restaurants have now outside. I hadn't seen one of those in Newark. Um, and actually, just the other day, I was in Montclair. I happened to be in Montclair, and it was I saw one in person for the first time. And I thought, well, that's a sign of safety, right? Even though it's sure. maybe not really all that safe, but this idea, and it's such a perfect. I mean, that's a perfect symbol for a lot of what we've been talking about is the sealing off of yourself from danger. I mean, that's the uh, essence of, of privatization, which we have seen as, as the sort of a, a, a motivating factor in so much of American culture is the move to privatize things. So instead of having to go to a public park, I have a big backyard. Instead of having to go to a community pool, I have a pool of my own, you know, those kinds of things. And the pod to me is that exact perfect uh, symbol of that move in the era of COVID, where it, it gives us this illusion of safety and also not having to deal with the outside world at all. Mary, let me stay with that because I think um, a perhaps unanticipated sign of, of safety at this time um, would also be something like the CVS, um, a, a kind of a drugstore, which in a lot of neighborhoods um, that have been abandoned by public policy and by investment, that may be the last place mm -hmm. in, in lots of those cases. And they serve as full service Grocery stores, they serve all the needs. Um, it's not just a place that a suburbanite might stop to, you know, um, pick up some tape and, and uh, soda and pick up a prescription. They serve a much heavier burden in a lot of urban places in America. And as well as I think about um, public health centers and really beleaguered 
chronically defunded um, public health infrastructures in cities like Baltimore and like Philadelphia that have been irreplaceable at this time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, symbols that people might look at and say, well, that's a sign of sort of urban decay. Look at this terrible looking public health center. And now it's become the lifeboat in these places. And I, I wonder how, how you think about that and how that maybe that might relate back to the Baltimore story a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's really interesting. And where I live in Newark, right on the corner of our street is a Walgreens that's open 24 hours a day, which is just kind of mind blowing when you think about it. But it's for the exact reason that you talk about, you know, our neighborhood's an immigrant neighborhood, working class neighborhood. And um, that place is hopping. You go there at two o'clock in the morning. You know, there, there are a lot of folks in there because it is a space where you can get like essential items. And so I think that, you know, you're right that those sorts of um, uh, places will have taken on a kind of new importance and a, a new sort of meaning and resonance um, under the conditions of the pandemic that we're looking at here. I also have to shout out in terms of thinking about Baltimore and public health, you know, I have to shout out Lawrence Brown, who just published a book called The Black Butterfly, where he looks at the history of public health inequities in Baltimore and, and shows, you know, alongside redlining, as Kyle mentioned before, that what we can see is the per pervasive inequity caused by redlining and racist loan policies throughout the 20th century has directly led to um, the public health disparities that we see in a place like Baltimore today, um, which he describes as the white L and the black butterfly. So if you look on a map, um, you can exactly trace um, the red line neighborhoods and they make this sort of shape of a, of a, of a butterfly um, that he calls a black butterfly. And he demands reparations basically for those mm -hmm. neighborhoods. And I, I think one of the things that I would say is a weird, hopefully positive outcome of the pandemic is that I think the pandemic has shown some of us, a lot of us, right, that the there, there is power and necessity for government, right? So that the, the uh, tenor of neoliberalization has been, you know, we need to get rid of government. Business can do everything that government can do. And what we've seen is that's not the case. And so I'm hopeful that maybe we can see a movement towards um, a, a different way of thinking about government that goes back to sort of an older model where government is really about social welfare, and is really about things that only government can do well, like take care of public health, because it is such a mass issue. And so, you know, is that a space where um, uh, Lawrence Brown's idea of reparation for public health disparities can be um, really debated and discussed, not just in Baltimore, but in, in every city um, in America? Because I think it's true everywhere. Kyle Mary just offered a very welcome, um, positive couple of points on the ledger there. And I've wondered the same after the um, wave of, of uprisings, uh, you know, after George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor's murder, um, that there was over-policing and there was some violence. Um, but in many other cities, there does seem to be some reform underway, which is driven very much at the community level, mm -hmm. surfacing demands that community leaders have been making now for three generations. Mm -hmm about reevaluating this relationship between public health and policing. And that's a matter of priorities. It's not a predetermined fact. Kyle, just if you wanted to jump onto that train of conversation, I'd like to hear. Yeah, I, I thoroughly agree with Mary that, and also Black Butterfly, please get it. But um, it's, a, it's a good plug because um, I think it really is actually an excellent way of thinking about what we're talking about. But 
I think to Mary's point, what has happened is given evidence to the lie of some level of privatization. And I think, I, I don't know, it's, an, it's a hard argument to give evidence for, but my suspicion is that most people knew that was already true, right? That actually privatization doesn't actually work, but as long as it works well enough for you, right? So they are still sort of understanding that privatization doesn't work, but that it is still somehow better than public things, right? Like it is still somehow not, go, you know, it's not going to lead us down to this path of socialism or whatever the the slur of the day is. Um, so I guess, I don't know if I'm hopeful, but I think I do have a belief that the consciousness raising of the last five to seven years around police violence and black communities and black people, um, and also these disparities in health outcomes around redlining and other kinds of evidence can lead to government reform. But I, a lot of the stuff we talked about earlier with the urban renaissance and neoliberalism and gentrification was really spurred by government, federal government spending, right? It's like cities had not right. much choice, right? In the era of, you know, what Kim, Kim Phil finds calls fear city or austerity politics, what choice did you have, right? To, to maintain your, your city government, you turn towards the things the federal government incentivized, right? Which was massive redevelopment, which was consumerism and tourism, not, you know, to, to your point earlier, Brooklyn very similarly had a waterfront full of small manufacturing and businesses. Newark had a waterfront full of small manufacturing businesses that just evaporated, right? And, and in part, you know, because of these bigger structural things and also um, globalization and other stuff. So I hope you're right <laughs> that people will see that it is possible to change things fundamentally, that they are not inevitable or natural, right? Because one of the, I think, Scott, to your point, and often what I teach is remembering these were decisions human beings made. They were incentivized right. and thought about these things. This is not naturally occurring that this is the way to do things or that the market will determine X, Y, Z in a proper way. It is fundamental to have to think about that. And, you know, I, I was also struck when you're talking about small businesses going away. It's like, well, yeah, when they don't have healthcare, right? Like it's much easier to fold your business when you're, you know, you don't, you're trying to spend this money other places because you're not being supported fundamentally. Yeah. And, and, and I'm concerned about this because, you know, part of me says, okay, there's this crisis and then you have Democrats entering, uh, Democrats controlling federal government. Um, and so you would think, and everybody always conjures up the ghost of FDR and says, see, we're going to see it. It's coming. Green New Deal, you know, new protections for workers. And I would say that the Biden administration has, I think, in its early phase, um, said all the right things and tried to move the right legislation. But I remember the 2008, we all remember the 2008 fiscal crisis. And, you know, I would say ultimately the federal intervention there uh, probably further accelerated some of these processes because they were kind of highway funds and um, mm -hmm. anchor institution funding which was like convention centers and sports stadiums and a lot to, to universities, which have a mixed record in, in this regard. Um, so I'm a little bit, I'm hearing what you're both saying and I'm, 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 I'm appreciating it at the same time, a little worried that after the midterm elections, we're going to see a reversal and it's going to be, you know, what can both parties agree on? They can agree that ultimately cities are really about shopping and they're about, you know, anchor institutions and everything else should just be, Forgotten. Let me leave that there, but ask you both, you know, based on your historical understanding, what might be some of the tells you would look for that real reform politics could be in the works? You know, when you think about your own research and the historical record, and they don't always pan out, but moments when, you know, history might point to this pandemic and say, no, there might be some real reform coming out of this. Mary, I'm putting you on the spot with this, but I'm curious what you might think about it. 
Well, you and you are putting me on the spot because that's actually a real, obviously a really difficult question. Um, but, you know, one thing that I think about in terms of Baltimore specifically, I think one positive thing that the city has seen is the um, election of its its new mayor, Brandon Scott, um, mm. who seems to me someone who um, actually um cares about the community, comes from the community, and has um, some of the right sort of uh, beliefs in place. And Baltimore's been plagued by a series of corrupt mayors. Um, that's really made it, uh, you know, made it a, just a perfect example as as uh, of the democratic machine politics and, and corruption and how that ruins um, cities that otherwise could be doing uh, good things. So I, I see some hope right there on that local level that, you know, a mayor like Brandon Scott can um, begin to change some things. Now, of course, right, the mayor of one city cannot do everything. And and it, it does require um, that, you know, the state government and the federal government um, uh, do their part as well. And so I, I'm, I'm very um, sympathetic to uh, local and, and uh, uh, state governments who are struggling so much during the pandemic because under the Trump administration, they were just left in the wind, right? So um, even though I think Right. It's good that things that the things have been closed for the most part in New Jersey. I understand business owners being like, what are we supposed to do? Because there was no helping hand. So, you know, I think that um, we can find some hopeful signs at the local level. Um, and I I mean, I would see it as a, a huge um, move forward if we could just simply have a discussion about cities that didn't center around shopping, right, that didn't center the, uh, around tourists, that that really thought about what is it that the people in these in this neighborhood um, actually need from government and what good can government do for those uh, people. So that's a tall order. Uh, but, you know, we might as well be utopian if we're just, you know, kind of throwing out some ideas. Well, but this powerful idea there. And, and Kyle, I'm really uh, appreciating Mary's point. You know, you ask an urbanist, um, what they think about federal policy, and they will immediately start talking to you about mayors. I love that. Uh, and it's, it's a useful reframing because it has absolutely been reflective of the pandemic that um, at the time when you really needed something, guidance from Washington, or at least, at least just not malefactors coming out of Washington, that people once again rediscovered that, oh man, the mayor of my city, or even the mayor of my small town is like actually an official with enormous power. Mm -hmm. Kyle, yeah. I'm bringing you in on that. Oh yeah, sorry, I was making a note to myself, trying to remember something. Um, so I'm struck by a couple things. So one is you're asking for bellwethers or signs if things are going well or poorly. I think Mary is totally right about the level at which reform politics really does work locally, because that suggests real groundswell of support, right? That there is political will to do the right thing, even in you know single party cities or or, or single party counties, right? Where sometimes those relationships kind of depending on what state you're in, right? Um, so if those are really working in places, you know, cause we see in Chicago, there's been lots of conflict over mayor Lightfoot, right? Uh, the approach to the schools, the approach to the police has been pretty much standard, right? Has not been that much different than Rahm Emanuel Chicago. And I think people were shocked. Um, and I think it's because those institutions like the police unions and other things and the metrics for the federal government of policing, et cetera, right. Is incentivizing them to, to, to maintain the status quo. Um, and I will remind right, both the New Deal and the Great Society and Urban Renewal, right, are all well-intentioned, I think, to some degree utopian progressive, you know, legislation and government initiatives. And they began, I think, truly not thinking about it as destructive. Um, but the devil is in the details, right? Like redlining comes out of the New Deal. It is a federal policy created through housing lending 
1936. So, you know, and Urban Renewal says Housing Act is 49 and 54. Every person deserves a suitable home. It literally is the first line of the thing. You can't even imagine people saying that today, right? Of the federal government passing a law that says everyone deserves, you know, it's just absurd. And yet, well, what do we get, right? Urban Renewal projects that, you know, urban Negro removal in quotes. So I think those are the signs where if we see more legislation or we see things that are specifically sort of housing policy or crime policy oriented and are massive reinvestments in the same policies, because I was sort of thinking about the cycle of 1968 omnibus crime bill, right, which is the response to urban unrest, and then the 1994 crime bill, which is the, the response to the perceived uh, crime spike of the 1980. I mean, it's, crime goes up, but it's, you know, it's sort of fashioned in a similar way, puts more cops on the street. So we're about the same amount of time from 1994 as 1968 was, right? So if we see another version of that, rather than some other kind of housing policy or some other kind of urban policy, it's not focused strictly on policing mm-hmm. and crime. Um, and I, I was heartened, actually, the, the one positive thing I'll say, uh, the new Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, um, uh, Marsha Fudge, I believe it's Marsha, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, so. she, she has said that she, she is reading those books on the history of redlining, um, that, that she was preparing for the job, which was, you know, I think all of us were just kind of heartened to feel like somebody gave enough of a craft to like actually prepare yeah. um, and, and, and was committed to the idea that we can't reinstitute uh, these policies simply because they're easy or we, we already do them. Uh, our expectations have fallen to the point at which we imagine a cabinet level official reading a book before they take their role as somehow. A, and I, I'm with you 100% on, on that, that you actually see qualified experts moving into these positions. And um, I don't want to be so cynical as to say that doesn't matter. And to also, you know, back to some points of our conversation to point out where, where there's been civic uh, city level corruption and to see that surfaced and to see that dealt with to me is also a positive sign. Um, that if you, if you had a one party city that it could still manage to deal with corruption and bring in reformist mayors, that's absolutely a sign of a functioning urban democracy. I think we're almost up on time and, um, really enjoyed this conversation. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask historians about the future, which is always malpractice for historians, but, but particularly I'm interested in the archive that we're making at this time or archives that we're paying a lot of attention to it at this time. And uh, Mary, I know you've been involved in a project. Um, called the Chicory Revitalization Project. I wanted to ask you about that first, maybe say a little bit about it, and maybe what a project like that, again, sort of means now in the midst of this pandemic and coming out of this urban crisis. I think we're going to come out of it sometime in the next year. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Chicory Magazine was a a poetry and arts magazine that was published in Baltimore from 1966 to 1983 by the Enoch Pratt Library in the city through War on Poverty Funding, actually. But what's interesting about it is that it published the poetry, unedited poetry of basically the um, African-American residents of the poorest neighborhoods of Baltimore, including a lot of young people. So um, it is a voice from the past that is as much as possible unmediated. And it's the voice of people who are usually left out of the historical record. So when um, I uh, rediscovered this forgotten magazine when I was doing the research for my book, I, I, I was really struck by it and thought, you know, this is, uh, was a public project to begin with. This um, needs to be sort of returned to the public. And so I've been able to uh, digitize the magazine with the Pratt Library's help. So the whole run of the magazine is available. And the Chicory Revitalization Project grew out of that. So I work with um, stakeholder organizations in Baltimore, uh, two youth writing groups that I have to shout out because they're amazing. 
do more Baltimore and writers in Baltimore schools. They both work with young uh, writers in middle school and high school in after school and summer programs. Um, and uh, so we've worked together on events. Uh, we have an Instagram. Um, you know, we've got a lot of projects in the works, actually, where we take the uh, poetry from Chicory and then connect it to what's happening today. So issues of police brutality that people young, a 17 year old guy is writing about in the first issue of Chicory. Uh, young Baltimore students today are like, oh, wow, this person is having the same experience I am. So that's a civic discussion, right? That's a, a, a dialogue across time and across generation. So we are using this poetry to spur these discussions through these various means. Um, and what I think is, is, is fascinating, right, is whenever someone gets to read this magazine, they immediately say the same thing. When are we going to do another one? All right. When are we going to have a chicory for today? And that's the thing I think that um, one of my partners, a teacher in Baltimore, Patrick Oray, has been talking about is creating a journal of our plagued year where young writers in Baltimore using the chicory model are reflecting on these plagues of racism and pandemic that have been affecting them. And those are the voices that I'd love to see um, captured for the future. Right. Because they're the voices that are most in danger of being lost. What an extraordinary project and the fact that it's being deployed right now to give students and others who want to participate the sort of voice to and a little confidence to see people have done that in the past. I, in my own experience on something like that, people might dismiss a project like that and say, oh, you know, how could that possibly work or, or why would you want to collect those, those voices or why do you need that, that magazine? They're incredibly powerful. And giving people that confidence to find some historical resonance with their own sense of fear and concern at this time. So that project then um, is also just to underline something that the, the library, and we haven't talked about libraries much today, but the Baltimore Library has been as essential in this as well, right? Absolutely. They're they're like our, our central partner and they've been an amazing partner. And they're an amazing institution in the city of Baltimore. They understand that the history of libraries is a history of racism and exclusion for the most part, right? Um, the libraries were segregated and, and and were seen as elitist even when they weren't. But they've really pushed back against that and and um, tried as much as possible to make the library in Baltimore the uh, a, a, a meeting place for the whole city. And so they've been just an amazing partner um, and have made, you know, as I said, the digitized the magazine. So that's available online as well. Um, so, you know, your listeners can go check it out and find uh, information and, you know, poetry in there that may speak to them as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I cannot say enough wonderful things about the Pratt Library. The Chicory Revitalization Project, which people can find, there may be an easier way to find it, but the, the website I found was uh, the humanitiesforall.org, and it was one of the projects that was listed there, Chicory Revitalization Project. And um, Kyle, let me just... Um, come to you with this same question, and I'm excited to hear your answer because I have to say in your book, and I read like all historians do, which is to say I take all the fun out of reading because I read the footnotes first, um, but that array of sources that you use in the book is really impressive, I have to say. And so Thanks. what's the archive that you're paying attention to right now as a sort of future interpreter of this time we're living through? I was so struck. Uh, thank you. That, that's really nice of you to say. It was intentional and it was frankly very difficult. Um, and I and I wish I had more time to work on it. There would be more interesting or more a wider array of more interesting things. Um, but I, I do appreciate you saying that. I think a lot about one, if someone asks you the question, why are you saving that? That's immediately when you know you should save something, right? That it means that person is 
no idea who that is or who those people are or what they're talking about, which is an archive, a voice that is missing, right? Whatever that voice is, it doesn't have to be traditionally marginalized or not. Um, so I, so partly it's that, right? That I suspect that a lot of what we are going to try to recapture, and I don't know how we will do it, um, is social media and the ways in which people are sharing, connecting, and discussing, right? Quite, quite democratically, for better or for worse, um, these issues, right, around governance, around COVID, et cetera, and that preserving those and trying to reconstruct them is the most difficult part. I think, so you may know the um, internet uh, archive.org and, and save everything, and, and their movement is immensely important. So if you can give money to that, it is they're literally trying to save everything that's ever been on the internet. Like they're archiving um, the AOL CDs you used to get for your free hours, right? Because they recognize that we don't know what we're going to need in the future to tell the story of the past. And so, you know, it, it's, so it's so crucial to try to save these things. So, so reconstructing that world is the way I try to think about it is you're trying to put the pieces of a world together. They are, they rely on each other and interact. You're not simply reading the newspaper or watching the news on TV or reading a comic book, right? This is your, they're all connected in some way. So, so there's that. Um, I had a second thing, which I now forgot. So there you go. Um, oh, I, so I was thinking about too, and I think you've discussed this on your show, Scott, which is, I think the AIDS crisis provides a model for doing this, right? That the ways in which the community itself that was affected or saw themselves as primarily affected, commemorated, created archives, did the work of, of, and in part the humanistic work of remembering people, but also keeping quite literally the idea of what happened alive because they were worried people would forget um, and they were quite clearly being disregarded at the time. So I think there's a good model there of how to save things and organize them and understand their importance that we could use because it is similarly a public health crisis. It's similarly, you know, affecting communities differently. Um, even though it's not quite as massive, it's still massive. <clears throat> so I think if we look to people who figured it out already, that's always a good way to go. Um, there's not, not necessarily a reason to invent the wheel, reinvent the wheel with something like this. Uh, just a quick shout out to Stephen Pemberton, who actually um, brought us together for this call and, and who's yes. a brilliant scholar. And he um, was on COVID calls with some other great guests. And, and we talk about those exact issues. And mm -hmm. then tomorrow I'm going to talk with Kristen Urquiza. Mm, excuse me. Um, I made you verklempt. You did. Um, I'm going to talk to Kristen Urquiza again, who was the founder of Marked by COVID, whose father died. Um, and then she wrote right. this, uh, what she calls an honest obituary and became an activist and then was on the Democratic National Convention stage and has continued to be an organizer. Probably was already sort of had an organizing bent, um, but she turned those talents to this exact work. Mm -hmm. um, and all of the, the many different projects, I, and I think about the aftermath of September 11, the, the many different um, uh, survivor groups, family groups, victim ad advocacy groups, um, for a disaster of a much smaller scale, but this enormous outpouring. And even now, a lot of that stuff is its not gone. It's hard to find a lot of it. I'm struck by it too, you know, Mary and I are both from New Jersey um, and I'm sure our lives were touched in some way by that, right? In a way that maybe it wasn't if you weren't from here. Um, I had a high school friend who passed away in the World Trade Center and thinking about those memories and how they've been collected, I think 9-11 has been different in a large part because it was seen as relevant to white culture um, and the ways in which it's been remembered. And I think what you're pointing to is that the, the fine-grained parts of it are lost because I think a lot of those people are 
it, it is harsh to say are seen as meaningless to the story, right? That they are not actually the story, but they are just part of this larger international political thing, which is super important, right? Like these ongoing endless wars in the Middle East and all these other things, but that so many of those people who died were service workers. So many of the people who were affected by it were the communities, the exact communities we're talking about with COVID. I mean, I don't know, Mary, if you have thoughts about that, but I'm always struck by the whiteness of that story. Um, and, and I have a friend, Dave Kieran, who works on, you know, sort of the memory of war and, and also works on the memory of, of 9-11. So pick up his book as well uh, for another plug, <laughs> Signature Wounds. Anyway. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I actually am from Middletown, New Jersey, which is the um, place that second to New York that had the highest number of, of people who died in the World Trade Center. Um, so there's a lot of memorialization that happens um, of those folks. And, you know, and I think and I was actually in New York on 9-11 for totally unrelated reasons. Um, but, um, you know, the. I think the point that you're making, Kyle, is a point that we can see happening in the institutional memorialization of September 11th. So at the September 11th Memorial Museum, you know, there are, uh, are a lot of folks there that I know that are trying to push back against the um, narrative of like, let's talk about the uh, office workers who died, but let's really think about the first responders and um, the service workers who were there as well. And and that's and that's critical. And I think, you know, that's exactly right that in COVID, those are the fo folks who are going to get lost along the way, um, you know, as we try to remember all of the, uh, you know, important, famous, you know, white people who were the ones who were um, lost as well. Well, I hate to draw this conversation to a close because I've enjoyed it so much, but um, we're going to wrap up now. And I want to just remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most days live, uh, most weekdays live at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank my guests, Kyle Reese Mendel, and you should get his book, Neighborhood of Fear, the Suburban Crisis in American Culture, 1975 to 2001. And Mary Rizzo, the author of... Um, Two books, the one we talked about most today, Come and Be Shocked, Baltimore, Beyond John Waters and The Wire. Uh, Mary and Kyle, thanks a lot for this conversation today. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Yeah, that was really great. And I hope I hope not too depressing. I now, I now feel like I've left it on the you know not great note. But nonetheless, um, thank you for having us. It was really a lot of fun. If you're talking about American cities and you come away um, you know, singing lighthearted tunes. You haven't been paying attention. So I, I appreciate the tenor of this conversation and the seriousness of it. And um, just to remind everybody, tomorrow is the one-year anniversary episode of COVID Calls. Please do join me for that, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Stay healthy, everybody. See you tomorrow, 5.30.